I'm here now to introduce you to Dr. Hugo Magianis, who was appointed as an Associate Press Professor of Christianity and Cultures at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University in 2007, and then as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs since 2019. In addition to those teaching responsibilities that he's had, he's, he's involved with many of the centers. He was the director of the Perkins Houston Galveston Extension Program and has been a director of the Center for the Study of Christianity and Religions for a period of that time as well. He earned his PhD in Religion and Society with a focus on Christian social ethics at Drew University, which is one of the reasons why he was one of my favorite professors at, uh, at Perkins. We, he, he taught a class on um, uh, theology and pop culture. Now, you can't imagine that I would like that, but, but he, he can bring relevance and the gospel and the good news to just about anything. He's an ordained United Methodist elder. He served for more than 12 years as a pastor in Mexico, Georgia where he was the founder of the first United Methodist Hispanic Church in the state. He served in Kentucky, where he served a migrant worker congregation, and in New Jersey, where he led a multicultural free Methodist congregation. He's the author of a few books, and he is my uh, dear friend and mentor, Dr. Hugo Magianis. Thank you, Pastor Kathy. Thank you so much for such a wonderful introduction, and I hope I can uh, live up to those expectations. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back uh, here at this fantastic church. It is uh, great to be here with my wife and to see the faces of former students, fantastic former students, so I'm delighted to be part of this worship service. Good morning to all of you. Several weeks ago, Pastor Scott reached out to me and asked me to bring today's message and he asked me specifically to talk about liberation theology. Liberation theology is an academic field where many theologians, particularly from Latin America, have developed a book, written books and developed fantastic ideas about Christian life and Christian ministry. And so he asked me to talk about it and to talk about the many points that they present. And immediately, a multiplicity of books and lectures came to mind, but please rest in peace. We are not going to, I'm not going to, to lecture. We'll finish on time. We'll, we'll finish the sermon right as you are, I'm not going to lecture for hours and hours. Thinking about today's message and following my usual approach, when I teach, I tend to ask my audience, my students, a few questions to get us started. And thank you for the children's message. It was fantastic, right on target. So I have a question for all of you. It has to do with the ceremony. It has to do with what we experience here with the children. So uh, how many of you have been involved in organizing a wedding? All right. What about a special event, a big time celebration, a special birthday where the celebration includes a big meal or significant gifts? All right, okay. If you have, I'm almost certain that all of you have to come up with answers to the following questions. Who should be invited? Who should be included? Why? Who do we cut? Why? <laughs> if not, uh, I I'm sure it's so, then soon you must ponder the reasons for inviting these uh, persons or not inviting this person. For example, what about family members? That should be a no-brainer. All family members should be included. Well, 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 sometimes. 
you think about that one relative that always gets drunk or the one that talks forever and never stops. It's like, oh, should they be invited? I'm not sure. And then you begin to wonder and ponder, ah, what kind of gifts would they bring? Oh, that gets interesting. What kind of gifts have they given to us in the past? Maybe we can see the trajectory. Do we owe them any favors? Perhaps if those who are getting married may be thinking of their future and professional careers, and perhaps they are thinking of including current and uh, previous supervisors, maybe thinking they could return the favor and help them in their professional career later on in their life. Sometimes that's something that comes into mind. Brothers, sisters, siblings, these questions tend to miss the point. Eating together. Many years ago, I read a book that was very important to me. It was titled The Ethics of Hospitality. In that book, I learned that eating together is very intimate. It's a bonding experience, a mutual transformation. You learn from me, I learn from you, and the two of us, by eating together, there is something miraculous, mysterious. There's a kind of a bonding experience that happens. And when we are thinking about gifts and who we cut and who we include and should we exclude, then we are thinking about missing the point altogether. One of the reasons that I love the Gospel uh, of Luke is because he has a very different idea about meals and banquets and the friendships that Jesus builds in that particular Gospel. And that's why I selected the passages for today. In fact, the parable of the banquet uh, that you are familiar if, uh, by the way, open your Bibles in Luke 14, uh, verses 7 through 11. And then you will see some of the things. I'm going to make uh, references to some of these passages. But before we go and we dive into, into, the, uh, into the passages, Let's, let's ask God to help us understand God's word, what, he has, what God has for each one of us. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this wonderful congregation, for the pastors, for the leadership. We thank you for each person this morning here. And we ask you, God, as we consider this important banquet, as we consider your, your, your reign, we ask you, God, that you will guide us and lead us with your Holy Spirit to be welcoming and inviting and to become hospitable even more so. Help us to understand what you have for each one of us and help us to see with your eyes and to hear with your ears the cry of the needy. In your name we pray and we give you thanks. Amen. Although the parable of the banquet comes after two, uh, is the third story in a series of three, the first one is found in Luke chapter 14, 7 through 11. Here you have pretty much like a banquet with an open table. And in here, the first thing that you read uh, in Luke 14, chapter, verse 7, Jesus says, When he noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table, he told them the parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may be invited. And if so, the, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important uh, place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to the better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all other guests. For all those who exalt themselves would be humbled, and those who humble themselves would be exalted. In this initial uh, talking about parable of the, of the banquet, 
I believe the gospel writer is telling us about our own human nature. He is addressing the guest. All the guests, according to this parable, they wanted to take the seat of honor. And, and friends, that is pretty common. Our human nature, while human nature, we are self-centered, we are egocentric, we want those places of honor. That's who we are. That's the way that we function. All of us, it, that's a product of our fallen identity. If you don't believe me, for those of you who have toddlers at home, you see them, they once begin to regain consciousness and they know who they are, first thing they say, it's mine and I don't want to share it. That's the way they react. But those are toddlers, and those were very different, right? So when your favorite, if you like sports, when your favorite team wins, we say, oh, we won. But when our favorite team loses, what do we say? They lost. I want to be associated with the victors, with the conquerors, with the ones who have fame and prestige, not with the losers. Come on. Reality shows like Survivor, it is okay, perfectly okay, to betray your friend for $1 million. Our natural tendency is to associate ourselves with the conquerors, with the powerful, to seek self-promotion. But Christians are different, right? We don't do that in Christian churches. Well, have you been to pastor's gatherings? I have. And I have noticed some conversations that occur sometimes in there. Sometimes I hear things like this. I deserve a better church, more attention, because I have the best congregation. Because my academic credentials are better than yours, so you should, get me the be you should give me the best church. Look at my average attendance. It's better than yours. Look at my church budget. It's more robust than yours. And basically what they're saying is, my church is better than yours. Perhaps when it comes to seminary, some people will say, well, my interpretation of the scripture is better than yours. Yours is wrong. My biblical interpretation is correct. Yours are not. Yours is not. So for this reason, I think the parable's emphasis is precisely telling the audience, do not do this. Do not follow that direction. Do not seek the seats of honor. Do not seek self-promotion. Do not identify with the powerful, with the rich. Do not seek recognition and prestige because those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. But that's to the guest. Then the second parable is pretty interesting. Then the second story comes in Luke chapter 14, 12 to 14. It is basically the same message, but instead of addressing the guest, now Jesus is in the parable, turns the attention to the host, to the person in power, to the person that is uh, hosting the banquet and the meal, and this person is in charge. And then he says to them, when you are thinking of the guest, who do you invite? Jesus has a very important advice. He says clearly and explicitly, do not invite those who can repay you. Invite the outsiders, the marginal, and the powerless. Do you see, in first century, this was common practice. If you throw a feast or a banquet or you had a big meal, you would invite people just like you, particularly to maintain social status. You would not invite a person lower than you. You would invite somebody at your level or higher so you can get to that position. It was designed to maintain the status quo. It was not designed to be inequality. Maybe equality for the, for the small group of people that were in power and control. So you would never, never, ever invite somebody lower than your class to a feast. 
That was not acceptable. So remember, think about this. Jesus is telling them, the host, don't do that. Don't invite people that can repay the favor to get ahead. He's not a closed group. He's not to maintain the social status. Friends, who do we befriend and why? Who do we extend hospitality and why? Who is your target audience and group? And when it comes to biblical interpretation, who are our dialogue partners? Who do we ignore? Do we ignore perhaps people that simply disagree with us? Or are we willing to give up our positions of power and privilege as we reconstruct our reality? Juan Luis Segundo was a Jesuit priest. He and Gustavo Gutierrez, both of them are considered the founders of liberation theology. Juan Luis Segundo, uh, an academic, he developed a methodological approach which he called hermeneutical circle. The circle begins by questioning somebody comes to you and preaches scripture, and if that person comes from a privileged position, the first step in that circle is be suspicious of that person because that person, consciously or not, has a bias implicit in that message. So if that person comes with a position of power and privilege, he says, you ought to raise your uh, ears and your alarm and think about what is this person saying. The initial step is to question and to be suspicious of the dominant interpretation, dominant uh, theologies. Obviously, this banquet, this message represents precisely a great challenge for all of us. This message, this parable, is questioning this theology. Could it be that this is the reason that why one of the guests in that powerful group said something quite interesting? Look at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him, with Jesus, heard, heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the, is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So this is the group in power. This is the, the, the elite. And they hear these harsh words from Jesus. Say, hey, you the host, invite the marginal, invite the least. And then somebody from that group says, yes, hallelujah, amen, Jesus. You got it. But no, now in the kingdom to come. When we are all together in heaven, that's when all of us are going to be equal, right? Wrong. It is not pie in the sky. It is not about, yeah, I agree with you, but not now. You don't mean here with us right now. You don't mean to, for us to practice this kind of hospitality at this very moment. Oh, certainly not. And then Jesus responds to this. I wonder, obviously, we don't have the way, the depiction of Jesus after he heard this, but I think he put his guess inside. You don't get it, do you? I mean, I've just told you to the guest and the host, and then you are saying that this is for the life to come? Come on, how many times do I have to explain to all of you these kinds of things? And then he tells the story that there is this great banquet, and there are three invitations that are given, and the three people say, mm-mm, no thanks, I can't. I cannot make it. The first two responses, or rather excuses, represent persons with wealth and property. They, they have the capacity to buy and to sell. These are like absentee landlords who have land, and they just come and go and get the money and get their uh, revenue, and then they go in their happy lives. For them to eat and to share a banquet with the, with the marginal, with the least, 
It's a sacrilege. It's heresy. It's, a, it's offensive to them to say, why are you suggesting for me to eat with those people? Don't even think about it. The third person, even though the excuse has to do with a family connection, also, when you marry, you have to have money, you have to have the funds, because back then, basically, you had the money to purchase and, and to make sure that you have a, a wedding ceremony. Very interesting. So the three persons, the limitations go out and they reject, what do they have in common? They are persons in positions of privilege. They want to maintain their understanding of reality, one that favors them, and they want to maintain the power in a small group. They protect each other. They cover each other's back. And consciously or not, they keep the outsiders at the margin. Why? Why did they decline the invitation? Because as I said at the beginning, eating together is an intimate connection. Eating together requires a humble heart and mutual transformation. I learn from you, you learn from me, and that together we are transformed by that connection. So maybe, because they are, they decline the invitation because it requires a risk. It's a challenge. It requires transformation and self-denial. I think those are the reasons why these three decline the invitation. But the parable doesn't end right there. Then there is something really strange, verses 21, the second part, all the way to 23. Who's missing at the banquet? After these three say, no thanks, I don't want to go. Then the Lord says, go to the highways and bring who? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Get them, bring them. Who's missing at this banquet, my friends? Those who were invited and rejected the invitation and those who excluded themselves, those who are afraid to enter into this personal face-to-face -face relationship with the marginal and with the outsider. And then, and then after all these persons, the poor and the crippled and the lame, they all came to the banquet and the banquet is almost ready to start, there is one verse that disturbs me. It says there, go out to the roads and the country, the lane, uh, country lanes and compel them to come to come in so that my house will be full. The word compel for a good Methodist Wesleyan is problematic. We believe in free will. We believe that people come in or go as they please. We don't force people into the kingdom. So when I read that, I said, mm, as a Wesleyan, I don't like it. So what does this mean? So I look at the, uh, the, the word and went to the Greek and realized that the same root for compelling is the same root for necessity. Could it be that we need each other? It's not that we are forcing them, that there is a need that we need to connect with people outside this, our small group for us to be complete. Friends, could it be that the kingdom of God is not complete until we encounter the poor, the lame, the cripple and the blind? Could it be that our Christian life is not complete until we give up our positions of power and privilege to listen to those whose voices have been ignored for years and years? Could it be that we need the marginal, the poor and the powerless more than they need us? 
There are so many Christians out there say, oh, we're going to help them. Ha <laughs> we need each other. Could it be that the banquet, our own Christian journey here and the here and the now is incomplete until the special guests arrive? Could it be that the outsiders, the marginal, were part of the banquet all along, showing the character that Jesus talks during the beginning of the dinner? They get it. The hosts didn't. And then you have a very harsh warning from Jesus on verse 24. None of these who were invited and did not come, they will not even have a bite at my banquet. Wow. These are tragic results. Although they were invited, they did not welcome God's special guests. They were not willing to go the extra mile. They were not willing to change their ways and to give up their position. And here, there is another connection to liberation theology. I told you that Juan Luis II and Gustavo Gutierrez were the founders. Gustavo Gutierrez is a Peruvian philosopher, still alive, teaching at Notre Dame. He's a Catholic theologian, a a Dominican priest, and he coined this phrase, the preferential option for the poor. Basically, what he's saying that God's understanding of justice, that God prefers the poor, the marginal, those of the outside, always, systematically, constantly. And I think that's what we see in the passages that I was presenting to you this morning. He says that the church is not the church if it does not include those at the margin. That our faith is incomplete and that we cannot call ourselves Christians if we don't have a personal face-to-face and share meals with those at the margins. These two theologians, Juan Luis II and Gustavo Gutierrez, were extremely influential, particularly in Latin America, but also beyond Latin America. But in one instance, and I'm about to conclude my message and I want to show you an illustration, They were, Gutierrez and Segundo, they were heavily influential in El Salvador. In the late 70s and the early 80s, when this country was going through so much turmoil and civil war, and people were killed by the thousands, the Catholic Church elected a particular priest to become the archbishop during that time. His name, Oscar Arnulfo Romero. He was elected because he was a centrist, a socially conservative. In fact, when he was ordained archbishop from the cathedral, he preached a sermon and he said something like this. The mission and the task of the church is to remain neutral. Don't align yourself with the left. Don't align yourself with the right. We should be come together and remain neutral. My question to him, obviously he passed away, he was assassinated. Can you remain neutral in the face of injustice? Can you remain neutral in the face of slavery? Can you remain neutral in the face of racism? Can you remain neutral when we have so much injustice? Can you remain neutral? Those were his words. But I'm bringing him up because that was his position. And then he had a good friendship with Rutilio Grande. Later on, this Rutilio Grande, he was influenced by the two theologians that I named. And he was working with the poor of El Salvador. He was working with them and trying to get them the rights and to move them to go and vote. In the scenes that I'm about to show you, I have a couple of clips that I had asked to, to show here. You will see the beginning of the movie, 
and Father Lutilio Grande is talking to people, and Romero comes along, and he is a little disturbed by what's happening. In the second clip, you will see Romero now. I told you how he presented himself at the beginning. Then he begins to eat with the poor. He listens to the stories, and his life took a turn, a 180 turn, and now he realizes that he cannot remain neutral, that he must take the side of the poor, for which he was assassinated as well. Do we have the clips? Good. Look at them. I curse the rain. I curse the dirt. But after the land was saved, I knew I loved it too. It was ours. But now, they came and said, we had to go. We were only sharecroppers. We had no rights. When we wouldn't go, they burned our homes. Left us with nothing. It's God's will. Who says it's God's will? I think God looks at these things and vomits. What's the matter? Oscar, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I am not doing anything. It is the people that are doing it. At last. Archbishop Chavez says you're going too fast. What do you think? I've always believed in you and your strength, your ideals. But some are even saying you're a sub subversive uh, agitator. Remember who else they called such names? Jesus is not somewhere up in the clouds lying in a hammock. Jesus is down here with us, building a kingdom. Oscar, what else can I do? I cannot love God whom I do not see. If I do not love my brothers and sisters whom I can see. Father Grande! Ambassador will be at the embassy. Hector, I would like you there. Good afternoon. Monsignor. How are you? Thank you, fine. Good to see you. Come in. Can I offer you an aperitif? No, thank you. Oh, sit down, please. Hmm? Now, what can I do for you? Hmm? I'm sorry to come to you like this, General, but this is a matter of importance. A few weeks ago, Father Grande was assassinated. Yesterday, a priest was tortured. Today, I presided at a funeral mass for Minister of Agriculture, Celada. This violence is destroying us. There is trouble on many sides, Monsignor. Even inside the church, elements have gone astray. The priests must stay out of politics. But there are political implications to the gospel. We will take care of those. Now, in a week, I will be inaugurated. The Archbishop has always attended to symbolize the Church's blessing. We have not heard from you, Monsignor. It would be of great help to all of us if you would be present. 
how can I bless a situation in which innocent people are disappearing night after night? Unfortunately, I have found it necessary to occupy Aguilares and to close the church until there is order again. You can't do that. It is a tragedy. But let's face it. This grande. We know what they're doing out there. We have proof. Inciting the people, agitating, calling political meetings. On the day you became Archbishop, on the day he was killed, he was a communist. Father Grande was here with me the day I became Archbishop. And the day he was killed, it was baptisms he was performing. You are a liar. confronting the powers that be, speaking in the name of justice, and taking a side on the side of the poor. There is a banquet, friends, in the here and the now, and you are invited. Will you give up your seat to include God's special guest? I hope you will. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>